We're going to pick up in Acts chapter 4, beginning together at verse 32. Acts chapter 4, verse 32. This is God's word. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon everyone or all who heard of these things. This is God's Word, an intriguing passage. Have those verses handy in front of you. We're going to look through them over the next few minutes together. As a church, if you've been with us over the last few weeks, really since the beginning of the year, you'll know that we're going through this series in the book of Acts. And we're not, we're not going through absolutely every section because there's so much in it. I'm just picking out some of the salient points that are particularly um, impactful for our church. In a couple of weeks, we've got uh, a friend of Foundation Church called Philip Swinburne, Phil Swinburne. Um, he's coming back to, to um, uh, speak on this amazing prayer meeting we see at the, uh, the section before in Acts chapter 4. So we're slightly out of order, um, but he's coming on the 18th of February. So uh, we'll look forward to welcoming him. Um, but here, uh, we, we, we come to this section where I suppose we could say it's one of the first challenges to the, the early church, the, the local church. Um, so far in, in, in our study through Acts, we've seen just some amazing, amazing things. Uh, we've seen the day of <coughs> pardon me, Pentecost, um, where the Holy Spirit came as per the promises of uh, the prophets came in fullness and in power upon uh, the disciples of Jesus in answer to his promise and filled the church with the Holy Spirit. And they all were speaking in tongues and praising God. And then after that, then we saw this amazing healing. We saw this uh, last week, uh, the healing of the, the, the lame man who was lame from, or a beggar, from the age of 40 uh, or so. And he was miraculously and amazingly healed. And we've seen powerful preaching. Uh, where many people, uh, particularly, well, the, the, the apostles particularly, uh, filled with the Holy Spirit, are able to speak of the good news of Jesus, and, and, and hundreds of people come to faith, if not thousands all at one go. It's amazing. 
And, and, and what we're getting is, is, a, is, is the, the highlight reel of the early church. And it's wonderful, and it stirs our heart. And, and when we read these things, we wish, oh my goodness, we, I want this to be the same for us every day of the week. We, we wish that our church looked like this, full of power, full of the Holy Spirit, full of amazing, wonderful things. And indeed, that is something that God calls us to. But the Bible is also very realistic, but it's not like that all the time. It's not like that all the time. There's no fairy tale. Uh, one, one famous um, writer, um, a preacher, church leader by the name of John Stott, said the opposition to the church comes in three ways. It comes through persecution, it comes through subversion, and it comes from distraction. These are the three main ways the opposition comes against the church. And he goes on to write that the enemy of the church, the chief enemy of the church, which is Satan, is fairly unimaginative when it comes to opposition. We see those same three things occur time and time again. And what we see this morning, and we'll, we'll take some time really to get into this uh, and really let it speak to us, is this account of the first challenge to the, the, the spirit-filled church. They're so full of faith and so full of um, wonder and joy at what's happened and what Jesus has done. And yet we see this um, opposition arising from within. We see that Jesus loves his church and we actually see the the extent that he will go to protect her um, from opposition. He's tough, he's severe, uh, but he loves his church. So we're going to see that as we, as we go through. And uh, we're going to th think about these two sort of um, headings, I suppose, and they sort of uh, you know, play with each other, I suppose, or interlink with each other. We'll see as we go through this text, those who are community makers, community makers, all right? and those who are community breakers. I think when we understand those two groupings, those two types of people, we'll understand what's going on a little more in this section here. Um, what we've just read together a few moments ago from Acts, the end of Acts chapter 4, um, <clears throat> again, is this wonderful sort of summary heading, you know, beginning at the top, the full number. They believed they were of one heart and one mind. They were just sort of one soul. They were united as people, this is a reference to the church, by the way, the, 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 the gathering of believers, um, together of one purpose, they knew what they were there to do, to enjoy God, to worship him, to speak much of Jesus, to, to share him. It was, it was wonderful. They were motivated, together animated by the same thing, the same gospel message, to love Jesus, to enjoy him, to show and tell the goodness, goodness of the good news. And it goes on to say they had all things in common. Um, and with great power, it says in verse 33, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord. We, we take from that loads of signs and wonders, um, miracles being done, this beautiful picture, a spirit-filled church. And it says that there was no one in any need. Why is that? In verse 34, um, because as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each person as they had need. Just this wonderful snapshot of this community of people loving, enjoying, praising, sharing, being generous. Do you remember we saw a couple of weeks ago the four marks of a gospel-centered, spirit-empowered community on mission? Do you remember what they were? There's a little slide, just in case you remember. 
<coughs> your memory's not what it was. Uh, they, the four marks of a gospel-centered church, that it's devoted, it's awe-inspiring. Number three, it's generous. And number four, it's growing. And, and we see that generosity here again playing out, don't we? This is not, by the way, normal behavior. The world doesn't automatically behave like this. It's only when God is up to something that people um, are, are, are as generous as this. And we have this man here. We come to this uh, particular character here in verse 36 called Barnabas. Well, they call him Barnabas anyway, which means son of encouragement. His real name's Joseph on his birth certificate. said Joseph. But he's referred to Barnabas here, and that's, that name sticks, um, the encourager. And uh, we see more from Barnabas later on. He joins Paul on some amazing uh, missionary journeys. But anyway, here he is showing um, how the, the community values play out in real life. And he's someone who has a field, it says, and uh, he sold this thing and uh, laid the proceeds at the apostles' feet for them to distribute to those who don't have um, resources and uh, at their disposal. That's what he did. He's a community maker, to use our terminology. Um, he's somebody who understands the gospel. Um, he's someone who, who, who allows the gospel uh, not just into the mind, but also to, to penetrate deeply into the heart. Uh, he's someone who is radically transformed by the goodness of the good news, by Jesus, and his values are therefore transformed. And so that's why we see Barnabas doing this as an example of a community maker, how it plays out in him. And it's just a beautiful picture, isn't it, of, of uh, what happens when the gospel of Jesus grips your heart and your mind. Community maker. Um, just imagine being in a community like that, a church like that. But then we've got this other type of person. And this is, this is where um, the note of caution starts to, to ring. Community breakers. Where do we get that from? Well, in, in, in the beginning of verse, chapter 5, verse 1, straight in, um, we have this person, this man and wife called Ananias, that's the husband, and Sapphira is the wife. <clears throat> Similar to Barnabas. They also have a field. They also are part of the church, at least externally. They're sort of visibly linked to the church. They also decide to sell the field. And they also decide to give the money and lay it, as it says, at the apostles' feet. That is, to give it to them uh, to, to figure out what to do with it. But unlike so uh, Barnabas, who's the son of encouragement, these two both end up dropping dead rather dramatically and suddenly, and getting buried by the end of the day. So how is it that the two, you know, on the surface are doing the same thing? Why does one couple end up dead, and Barnabas ends up joining Paul and doing some awesome stuff later on in the book of Acts? Well, the key in the text is in, we see it twice in verse 2 and, and verse 3, or once in each verse. Um, this they sold a piece of property, it says in verse 1, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds. Down in verse 3, how have you lied to the Holy Spirit to keep back for yourself the proceeds of the land? It's the same word in the original uh, Greek, and it, it really uh, means this idea of keeping back something is, is um, associated with misappropriating something or stealing something or just sort of sleight of hand, you know, um, holding something back. <clears throat> And, uh, uh, and that's, that's what they did. Now, could it, could it be that they promised to sell this um, piece of land and give the whole lot to the church 
Um, could it be that, that they, they said, it, you know, we, we don't know exactly what it was, um, but it seems clear that they made out that what they gave to the church was the whole amount. They sold the field, let's say, for £10,000, and uh, they gave £5,000 to the church. That's completely fine. That's okay to do. Wonderful. Thank you, God. But they made out that that was all of it. They kept the rest for themselves. And we can see in verse 4, Peter says, look, was it not yours to do with what you wanted? And almost telling you it had to be this percentage or this amount or it had to be the... It was your choice. It was yours to begin with. When you sold it, it was yours to decide what you did with it. But he says, you've not only been lying to, to men or you know, to, to the apostles, to the church, to your fellow church members, but he says, ultimately, you've been lying to God. How did, how, did, how did Peter know, by the way? How did Peter know that that was the case? Because the, the, the field had been sold. Barnabas gave the money. Sorry, um, uh, Ananias gave the money. How did Peter know that wasn't the full amount? How did he know that Ananias was pulling his leg? Um, di- did he get some sort of tip off uh, from someone? You know, did, well, he stood in the post office queue and just heard a few people up the front talking about how much he really made on the field. Was someone uh, posting anonymously on Facebook, and he picked it up like that. Um, probably no, no to all of those options. Uh, it seems more likely, as we've seen already in the beginning of chapter 3 of the book of Acts, that the Holy Spirit revealed this sudden truth to Peter so that he was able to know the mind and heart of Ananias without looking you know, externally. Um, the Apostle Paul goes on to call this uh, the gift of knowledge. Uh, sometimes uh, the Holy Spirit will give a sudden sort of awareness of, of, of something that otherwise you would not otherwise have known. Um, and, and sometimes that's a good, uh, you know, a, a positive thing. Sometimes it's, it's, it's revealing a sin or something like that. That's probably what was going on here. A sudden revelation of the Holy Spirit that actually there's something more than meets the eye with this guy, Ananias. You've lied to the Holy Spirit. The issue is not that you only gave a proportion of what you made on the field. The issue is that you let on. That's the whole amount. And as the text goes on, uh, his wife then comes in, unbeknown to her, what's been happening. um, And uh, she gets the chance to come clean. And again, uh, she agrees and and, and carries on this ruse that, yes, indeed, this is the full amount that we got for the field. Uh, She also lied. um, And the same Thing happened to her as well. Uh, she dropped dead as a result of her lie. They'd agreed together as husband and wife to test God, to um, uh, come up with a story to the church, and they both perished that day. And it's no wonder in verse 11 we see that great fear came upon the whole church and all who heard of these things. No wonder. So, why did this all happen? Why this elaborate story? Why this really harsh and sudden um, death at the end of it? Well, I suppose it goes to show you can lie to human faces, but you cannot lie to God, to his Holy Spirit. What was going on here was that Ananias and Sapphira were, were doing their best to appear more spiritual than they really were. Um, more holy, more more generous. They they, they wanted the glory and people to think well of them without the sacrifice. 
without the cost. They wanted people to praise them, to affirm them, to say how wonderful and how generous they were, but actually they had another motive. They wanted to build for themselves influence. They wanted the glory without the sacrifice. They wanted to manipulate the church for personal gain. For example, we get that in verse 4. How is it, um, Peter says to Ananias, um, why is it, rather, you have contrived this deed in your heart? It's a plan. It's something they were working on. How can we, how can we get away with the least amount and get the biggest influence? Or in verse 9, you've agreed to test the Holy Spirit. They thought they could get away with it. How wrong they were. And so they were killed on the spot. It's an execution, if you like. So destructive to the community was this lie that the pair of them were made an example of to the rest of the church. So we've got, on the one hand, community makers, Barnabas, living out the values. And on the other hand, we've got community breakers, as summarized by Ananias and Sapphira. The community makers, like Barnabas, are selfless, whereas the community breakers are selfish. Community makers are rooted in the gospel. Community breakers are rooted in themselves, in self-promotion. For one, the core is the response to the gospel and the well-being of other people. For the other, at the core is their own desires and the well-being of themselves and their own empire. The community makers are submitted to the Spirit. Community breakers are lying to the Spirit, thinking they can get away with it. Community makers, like Barnabas, are genuine and compassionate and authentic and sacrificial. Community, you, you, get the, you see where this is going. Community breakers are the complete opposite. They are false. They are manipulative. They are inauthentic. They are hypocritical. Community makers are open and respective of their godly leaders. We see that here. Whereas community breakers are seeking to usurp and, and, and uh, subvert the leaders for their own ends. And we see both of these types of people in the early church. And what we have here is a, a key moment in, in the health and the growth and the vitality of the church. Because if this was not dealt with and highlighted, it could severely disable the forward momentum of the church, the advance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you remember what John Stott said at the beginning, the three forms of opposition? Do you, do you remember that he said that the, the enemy of the church is fairly unimaginative and that we just see things repeated time and time again. So our question for today is, do we see these things in today's church? Subversion, as Stott says, trying to get in and, and curry favor. Do we see this today? You bet. 
and it has the same potentially devastating effect that it had and would have had on the early church had it not have been dealt with. In fact, I've seen firsthand what happens with this posturing and manipulation and building of influence and the damage that can cause in the church. Sometimes these things can be detected by wise, discerning, spirit-filled people. And discernment is a gift, by the way. Some have it and some don't, according to the sovereign choice of God. Some leaders may be aware, some are not. People can be very clever with their actions and their behaviors and their words. And they can fool many of us. But as Peter says to Ananias, you're not lying ultimately to humans. You're lying to God. There's no running. God cannot be mocked. Peter had this revelation we've seen in these verses. Um, this sort of, it led to this public calling out, um, this, this, this public uh, <coughs> disciplining, I suppose, of, of, of the issue. But the greatest danger is when someone thinks they can lie to God and get away with it. You can't. In fact, I think it's relatively easy um, to, to fool other people in the church. I'm not saying I'm doing it, by the way, just so you know, but I think it's relatively easy to fool other people in the church because in the church, um, we're, we're on, on balance, we're generally a well-intentioned, good, nice group of people, and we want to think the best of one another, right? That's good. That we should be. We want to uh, assume the best when we come to thinking about other people's motivations, that is right and, and a grace-filled way uh, to treat one another. We overlook um, you know, sins and infractions with love. That's what the Bible teaches. But it doesn't mean that we can turn a blind eye, particularly those with the gift of discernment. I just want to be clear, though, <clears throat> before we um, sort of try and nail this down a little more, what this does not mean, this teaching, this teaching does not mean, um, for example, if you had a field or a piece of property or savings or whatever, um, and you decided that you want to give some to the church, um, this does not mean that you have to give the full amount always, all the time. Uh, that's not what this is teaching. Say if you have £10,000 you want to donate, but you're only, you know, you're only able to give half of that, whatever, whatever it might be. That that's totally fine. That's between you and God. Um, it's it's, it's, a, it's a, a reflection of our hearts when we give. Uh, it's a reflection of, of, of how we understand the gospel. God has been generous to us. Therefore, you know, we can, we can use our resources to reflect that generosity. We're, we're all called to do that. But this does not mean that we have to give absolutely everything and, and make ourselves totally penniless. That's not the teaching here. In fact, we see that clearly in verse 4. You know, Paul, uh, Peter says... Um, was it not your own? To, you know, uh, when, when it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? You, you can do with your resources what you wish. It's between you and God. The point is not that you have to give everything you have. The point is, which one are you? When it comes to your giving, 
Which one are you? Yes, this is a heart check message. Not necessarily a feel-good message. This is a heart check message. But it's important for us to be well-equipped and understand what's going on in this text. Because this stuff simply, if we leave it unchecked, wrecks churches. It breaks churches. We see that here. This is, this is why they're dealt with so severely by God. There's so much at stake, if you think about it, in this sort of um, community breaking, posturing, manipulation building. There's so much at stake because you've got the very power and vitality of the gospel at stake. The, the, the witness of Jesus in a particular area is at stake. And ultimately, the glory of God is at stake. This is why we cannot tolerate community-breaking attitudes and behaviors. And so I, for one, as a pastor of the church, am committed to healthy accountability as the Bible teaches. And um, by God's grace going forward, we'll, we'll, we'll have a, a team of elders who likewise are committed to that same healthy level of accountability to one another before the church and also um, requiring that same level of, of authenticity and openness, I suppose, um, among the church. We have to understand um, the, the risks here at play when it comes to community breaking. Uh, leaders, by the way, are not to be the fun police. Um, they're not to enter your, your minds and tell you what you must think and do. Um, however, uh, we are called to be shepherds of the flock, um, rightly uh, helping, guiding, and uh, challenging where necessary. That's the role. We cannot allow this sin in our own hearts. We cannot allow this sin in our church. It's a devastating sin. We must test our own motivations. I can't do that for you. Only you can do that yourself as you read scripture, even this particular one here, and you ask yourself, who am I most like in these two scenarios? Barnabas, the son of encouragement, or am I most like Ananias and Sapphira with how I use my resources, how I project myself? We want to be a church who are defined as community makers, amen, not community breakers. We want to be a church that is committed to building one another up in love, not tearing one another down. And we want to be a church that is, is highly influenced by those four marks that we saw of the gospel-centered community. We want to be a church that allows the good news of Jesus to soak so deeply into our souls that we can't hold it back. We want to be the kind of people who say God first, others second, and myself third in the order of importance in my thought life and in my actions. It's not about thinking less of yourself. It's about thinking of yourself less. We want to be the kind of church that responds, don't we, to the gospel with radical acts of generosity and compassion the kind of church where, as it says here, there are no poor among us. Imagine how countercultural that looks compared to the world outside. We want to be the kind of church that considers 
our worldly resources, whatever you have at your disposal, whether it's great or, or, or small in the eyes of the world. We want to be the kind of church that considers those things as simply trinkets compared to the astonishing treasure of knowing Christ Jesus. When you get the perspective right, our hands open up, our hearts warm up, and we become a generous, authentic group of people.